You open your Bibles to Acts 5. We're just going to look at one verse today. But don't get excited. I can take as much time with one verse as I can with 10. So, um, but uh, uh, this morning, I, I, I'm excited about tonight, um, about that. It's a celebration of our music ministry and how God has blessed us. And uh, he, he blessed us with the faithful folks that were helping us while we were searching for new worship pastor. He blessed us with, uh, with, with Pastor Andy and his family. So we're just excited about that. I'm excited about the finger food. We've been collecting fingers all week to make our dish for tonight. And uh, so we're excited about that. And it'll be delicious and wonderful. Um, sorry, that was just a joke. Um, yeah, and, and uh, Pastor Andy doesn't know me long enough to know, but uh, uh, Great Is Thy Faithfulness is like in my top three songs. And uh, uh, it, it was, uh, it was it's the unofficial alma mater of Columbia Bible College where I, where I got to go to seminary and um, so whenever I hear it start, I have to stand up. It's like, you know, sort of like the national anthem, I have to stand up. Um, but I really appreciate singing that because I don't know if you caught the, the, the most meaningful, well, the whole song is meaningful, but in the chorus is the phrase, all I have needed, your, thy hand hath provided. Now, we don't speak that way anymore, but hath is past tense. It means it's already there. And so God has already provided everything you need, and God just brought that phrase to me. Uh, in the midst of one time when I thought he had taken something from me, but he actually he had, was providing something better for me. And uh, it was one of the early times I learned that lesson, and it was because of that song. So I, pr- I appreciate that uh, very much. Um, I have a friend I went to that school with. His name uh, is Jimmy Acre. He married a girl named Ann. They both were at the seminary together. He, he began pastoring a church down in Surrey, Virginia, across the river from... Uh, Williamsburg in, in 1987, he's still there, 31 years in that church. He and his wife had six children. And one day my son was at, the, at home from, uh, he lived in Lynchburg. He was going to the community college. He didn't start Liberty till last year. Uh, he went two years community college there. And, uh, but he got involved with a bunch of guys there. He, he would, he, they didn't know he wasn't at Liberty. Everybody, everybody on campus thought he belonged there because all his friends were there. But um, he was, I was telling a story, he had some of his friends in the house, I was telling a story about Jimmy that I went to school with, something we had done together, and I was telling his friends a story, and it was kind of a little guy's thing, and, and uh, my son looked up and he said, Pastor Jimmy, because he was doing something else, not paying attention, and Pastor Jimmy was our music pastor that he grew up under, and I said, no, 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 a friend of mine from school named Jimmy Acre, he went, oh, and he just kept, he kept going, and after he left, some days later, I was looking, and, and he had met, made some friends there. One was a guy named McGann. I, I can't think of, of McGann's first name, because that's how everybody called him, McGann. And uh, I, I noticed he had posted something, and Ian had liked it on. Then I saw Katie Acre, which is Jimmy's daughter. So the next time he came, I said, uh, I noticed that a Katie Acre likes, uh, likes something your friend McGann's. Yeah, they're dating, and... Katie Acre, is that Jimmy Acre's daughter? I said, yeah. He had made, it's Shep Acre, yeah. And he had made friends with Jimmy's kids at Liberty, not knowing that the dads were friends. Yesterday, I got word that Jimmy's youngest son, Shep, was killed Thursday night in a motorcycle accident in California. And so I told you that story that way, just so you would understand uh, the impact um, uh, of what that, what that, this morning as I was getting ready, I was thinking, what is Jimmy and Ann thinking this morning? That, you know, it's a bad dream and tomorrow maybe they'll wake up and he'll still be here. But he's not. He, he is dead. And they had six children. Shep was the youngest boy. 
you know, good friends with my son, good friends with my son's friends, and, uh, and he and his, his father and I, his father had great impact in my life and blessed me through the years. And, and so I just, if, if you don't mind, I know it's a personal privilege thing here, and, and some of you may be having similar difficulty, but would you pray for Bacon's Castle Baptist Church and Jimmy and Ann Acri and their family with me this morning? I would appreciate it. That's just a personal favor. Lord God, I thank you in Jesus' name that you are the resurrection and the life. Lord, I pray for uh, Jimmy and Ann and Ethan and Caleb and Livy and Katie and Joy and their mates and their, fam- their church family and their extended family. Lord, you know how faithful Pastor Jimmy has been all these years to you. And Lord, we know that this is a loss here. There's nothing else you can call it. But it's a gain for Shep. And ultimately, we won't even doubt it once we see your face. We won't even doubt the pain and the sorrow that we feel now. But I pray for Bacon's Castle this morning. I don't know if Pastor Jimmy's even going to attempt to preach. I'm not sure that he could. I'm not sure I could. But Lord, I just thank you for for the, the greater family of the church. Not just Bacon's Castle, not just Calvary, but all of us together. Being one family in you. And Lord, though our hearts break now, we know uh, that is just a personal earthbound sorrow that is momentary and light, and that one day that will fade away in the glory of your face. So I just ask you to lift up Jimmy and and Ann and their family and this church this morning. Lord, in this auditorium right now, there are people uh, whose hearts may be just as broken, whose lives may just be in just as much turmoil. And, And Lord... Um, we don't want to play the comparison game, but God, I ask that today we would see you as our answer. We would see you as the only hope we have. I thank you so much that you led Pastor Andy to play for us and sing with us today. Great is thy faithfulness. Because all we need and all they need has already been provided. May they cling to you today in a new way that will never, they'll never again be able to let go of you in the same way. Lord, thank you that you're faithful when we're faithless, for you cannot deny yourself. And that you are with us, the greatest promise, you're with us. You will never, ever leave us, never, ever, ever forsake us. Until the end of the age, until the end of this age, you are with us. And then we'll be with you physically. And Lord, for that we really rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for, for that indulgence. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I remember uh, when the, the year I graduated high school, uh, our youth group, and, and I was still hanging out. My best friend was a year younger than me, still in the youth group. And we planned this trip to this Christian ranch summer camp type deal. And we all went. And, and at that summer camp, the churches would compete with one another. They had basketball, football, different things. And, and there was about five of us kids, and it was, it was a five or six-man football team game. You know, it was supposed to be flag football, but we didn't know anything about flag football. Uh, even though we played it, we played it like we were wearing pads. We played like we were hitting each other. And so we, we signed up. We're going to play football because most of the team was there, and even the guys with us that weren't on the team we had played on were, uh, were, were be- probably better athletes than any of us anyway. And 
My best friend was a walk-on at Liberty. He played linebacker for Liberty. Uh, he was uh, he was on the on the you know the tackle dummy squad. Uh, you know, I got to give it that. I don't want to make it sound, but he he was good enough to make the team. You know, and then next year he didn't. I said, "Why didn't you keep going?" He said, "Man, I just I lost my enthusiasm for it. I just I was done." So, but but he he from that point he, that summer the next summer he walked on at Liberty and and won a spot on the team. And, uh, and so we, we're going to play football, and we looked at the guys that we drew for our very first game, and it was a, a church from Texas. Now, I want you to get a, a picture of that. Everything's bigger in Texas, including the Texicans, all right? That's a, that's a Mexican born in Texas. And there were some big old boys playing on that team. And I looked at my friend, Trey, uh, my best friend, I said, Trey, man, I'm scared, he said, what are you scared of? I said, you see those Mexican boys? Man, I'm going to get killed. Because I weighed like 118 pounds, and these boys were big. He said, I'll show you what to do. Get down to three-point stance. I said, wait. He said, get down in the stance. So I got down my three. I couldn't do it right now. I got down my three-point stance. He got down in front of me, and the next thing I know, I'm looking at blue sky. Because he hit me, wham, knocked me off my feet. I'm laying on my back, and he straddled me and looked down and said, they're not going to hit you any harder than that. And turned around and walked off. If I'm lying, I'm dying. That's the truth. That's exactly what he did. You know what? He knocked the fear right out of me. Today, I'm going to talk about we must obey God rather than men. And here's what I want you to take home. Would you go ahead? Obedience eliminates fear. Obedience eliminates fear. Now, I obeyed my friend. I got down three-point stance. I didn't know what he was going to do. Uh, but I learned real quickly. But obedience eliminates fear. Listen to this verse. We, we've already prayed. I've already asked God to... To bless us. But listen to this verse. Uh, usually I ask you to stand up, but I'm not going to. Verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. Very simple. Peter and the apostles answered. Notice. Peter and the apostles. They were there together. They were arrested together. They answer and say, we must obey God rather than men. And that, that phrase, that sentence just has... Uh, I've been mulling over that all week. Because what sort of obedience is this? When, when they say we must obey God, what does that mean? And, and it, you can go on to number one. It's, it's no big deal, but just to help people out. What sort of obedience is this? This word is unique in the New Testament. And, and by unique in the New Testament, I mean it's not used very many times. And all but one time it's used... Luke uses it in the book of Acts. The only other time it's used, Paul, who knew Luke very, very well because they're hanging out together, Paul used it over in, in the book of Titus uh, is, the, is the only other uh, place it's used um, in Titus 3.1. But here's what this word means. It's a combination of two words. One part of it means it's a result of persuasion, but the other one is it's a special term that means... You owe obedience to that authority. In other words, like a child owes obedience to his parent. Like a subject owes obedience to its king. Like a, 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 an American citizen owes obedience to the law. So it is a person who owes obedience to an authority. Whether they exercise it or not, they owe it. And when you put these words together, it means you are persuaded by your authority that you ought to obey. Now, different authorities use different means of doing that, don't they? 
Kings use, you know, uh, a dictatorship would use uh, severe punishment, death for breaking a law. A king might use the power of the king to, to, to do something similar, or at least to, to pressure. In America, we have laws and a court system to persuade you that you ought to obey the laws. The persuasion comes in different ways. But in this sense, and, and the way these apostles are saying it, do you get what it's saying? That they are persuaded by God that they ought to obey him rather than what men say. You catching that? They must obey God. It is a persuasion by an authority. Now, if you understand who God is, that doesn't seem very difficult. I, I get tickled at people that, that don't believe the miracles of the Bible. You know, they don't believe that the Red Sea was part and a half and people walked on dry ground. They don't believe that an axe head swam. They don't believe uh, no, uh, Jonah was swallowed by a whale. They don't believe in the great flood. They don't believe in creation. They don't believe Jesus actually healed people and did the miracles he did. But I, I, I had somebody tell me one time, uh, a mentor say this, and, I, and I've never forgotten it. When you accept the God of the Bible, the miracles of the Bible are no big deal. If God just spoke and everything that is became, that there was nothing, and that God stepped out on nothingness, and spoke, and boom, everything is, then whatever he does with it is not a, a, such a big deal. It's a miracle to us because we live under natural laws that he created for the world to continue to work. But he can suspend those laws or change those laws or make it... It only works this way because God made it to work this way. He could have made it work a different way. He could have made us to live on the sun. Do you understand that? We could have made our bodies and all where the sun would have been like, hey, this is where we live. It's kind of cool here, you know. And, and, and the temperature wouldn't even bother us. And, 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 and so fantasy writers, whether it's literature or movies or TV, they come up with all these, they try to come up with weird, cool things. But it's always based on what we already know. God knows what we don't know. Right? God is beyond that. God could do some things that you can't even, we can't imagine because we can only imagine based on what we already know. We can't get outside of that. God dwells outside of that. Do you understand that? He entered human existence in Bethlehem as Jesus, but he dwells outside of this universe and all of that. Now, he may have made a planet that he named heaven and that's where heaven is. We don't know. Heaven may be just a different dimension of where we are now. We, we really don't know where heaven is. We just know that where God is, that's heaven, right? You following that? So if I'm with God, I'm in heaven. That's, that's just that's the way it is. It doesn't matter where that is. But God is that God. And once you understand that he made you and he loved you enough, even when you were in rebellion against him, to put on an earth suit, move in amongst us, never break a law of God and die in our place on a cross and rise again on the third day after being buried... When you understand that, I think I owe him some obedience. I owe him to do what he said. Now, you can obey out of fear. I mean, how many of you can possibly pass a policeman sitting on the side of the road, even if you are obeying the speed limit and not jump? You hit the brake and look at you like, you know, like you weren't really paying attention. I love cruise control. Because my ability to drive a car is far beyond what the speed limit says. In my mind, I'm a legend in my own mind. You know, I, I think I can do that. 
scary, you know. So I love cruise control. I, mean, I love a car cruise control because when I get in, I set cruise control so I don't keep me from speeding, you know. And I can be on cruise control and I see a policeman. I'm going to hit the brake. It just scares me. Well, that's fear. That's an authority, obedience because of fear. I'm persuaded that I ought to obey, right? Well, that, that's, a, that's a persuasion out of fear. That, that's not always a bad thing. There's some people, you know, uh, that, that need to be persuaded by fear sometimes. But, but what is the limit of obedience to God? That's almost a silly question, isn't it? What should be our limit? How much should we obey God? That's a silly question. Well, we ought to obey him in everything. Well, we say that, but we don't fully follow that, do we? Let me give you at least three areas and, and three... Uh, we're coming to that in a minute. You can stay on the first one. I haven't even got there yet, even though I did say that. You're right, I did say that. I'm sorry. I just, I'm still here, though, in, in my mind. Anyway, uh, just let me give you the reference. 2 Corinthians 10.5... And, and actually, uh, if, if you follow um, Oswald Chambers, this is the verse for today there. Um, and if you got Facebook and you want to see what, I, I just reposted it. I didn't say much about it, but uh, you can look at it there if you want, if you don't have it. But, but here's what it says there. He's talking about our warfare, and we're going to be talking about putting on the armor uh, in our CTI class. But, but here he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That knowledge is not just a, in the brain, but it's experiential knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. The thoughts that we have that are outside of obedience to Christ need to be destroyed or made captive. And so by the spiritual weapons he gives us, our minds are to be brought into obedience to Christ. Do you ever think a thought that God doesn't want you to think? Then you're ungodly in your thoughts. A, a preacher, I, I, we were talking about eternal security the other day and, and sin as a Christian and all, and I said something I thought everybody had heard before, but no, it's so old, but it's now so old it sounds new when I say it, but an old preacher said, I can't keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can stop him from building a nest in my hair. Y'all heard that, some of y'all? Not everybody, maybe. In other words, sometimes a thought will come in, and you know what that is. We live in such a physical world, we, we ignore the spiritual. We, we kind of jokingly talk about, I got an angel on one shoulder and a demon on another. Well, there's a reality to that, and the reality is there are demonic forces always fighting to control our mind. And the Bible says we need to take our mind captive so that our thoughts are directed toward God. That's why in Philippians it says if it's lovely, if it's good, if it has virtue, if it has this, think on these things. The way you don't, you don't not think bad thoughts by saying, I'm not going to think bad thoughts. You know, I, what I don't want you to do is to think about a pink rhinoceros goring a purple elephant right now. Well, yeah, you just all did. Okay, sorry. Why? Because whatever you put your mind on is what you're going to think about. I've I, I said something about this recently. That The best lesson I learned taking a class on how to ride a motorcycle was your bike will go where your eyes are. And, so, and, and I had a friend. He, he went off the side of the road and wrecked. And he said, you know why I did it? He said, I saw I was going off the side of the road. And I started looking at the side of the road. And I went off. If you're going off the side of the road, you look up at the horizon and you're, because your mind and body, your body will follow where your eyes and your mind is focused. Same thing's true in spiritual life. 
That's why it says, don't make provision for the flesh. Fill your soul, your mind, your spirit with godly things. Because what you fill your heart and mind with is what's going to come out, is what's going to be there. So our minds are to be brought into obedience of Christ. And, and, and our bodies are to be brought into obedience of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, this is a, a misused passage sometimes because people use it for every sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about mainly about sexual sin. But here's something I learned a, a few years ago, and that is when the Bible talks about adultery and talks about sexual sin, he compares um, uh, uh, cheating on God with that. And so he uses the same words for both. You see it in Revelation. You see this, this prostitute of Babylon that the nations uh, commit sin with. It's not actually, you know, that act. It is the fact that they, they abandon God to obey that. And he says the same thing. You adulterers and adulteresses in the book of James. He calls us that when we disobey God. And for, so 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about all that. But here's what he, but he's talking about the physical act of adultery. And as he comes down uh, to verse, uh, well, I'm going to start in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who's joined with a prostitute becomes one body with her for is written the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him flee from sexual immorality every other sin a person commits outside the body sexual immorality uh, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God you are not your own for you were bought with a price so therefore so glorify God in your body. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable in God. This is your reasonable service of worship. In other words, let me, let me put this in everyday language. You can't use your body for what you want. You cannot use your body to satisfy your appetites. Whether it be food or drink or physical pleasure, or anything. And that physical pleasure could be even exercise, or, or taking ease, you know, not, not doing anything. Maybe you like to please your body by not working too hard, you know. Guess what? Our bodies are to be brought under the discipline of the obedience of Christ. Our minds belong to him. Our bodies were bought. You say, oh, come on, you know, our bodies are temporary. No. They're temporary, but they're going to be changed. And he bought this body. I like to watch those TV shows sometimes where they take an old car and restore it. Because some, somewhere in my deep rest, recesses of my fantasy brain, I'd like to do that. I could, I, you know, I can barely change oil. I'm never going to restore an old car. I know that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Brother Johnny here at the church, he restores one a year. That's, uh, it's pretty amazing to me to see that process. And, and it, God's going to do more than restore it. He's going to make it brand new. This body. And so I know what you're going to ask. What about the people that burn up? Or what about the people that drown and they're eaten by fish? And, you know, all that. Guess what? God knows your DNA code. And remember what I said? He can do stuff we haven't seen yet. He can alter your DNA code, make your body act and look differently. 
However, in heaven with the new body, we still know each other. So I don't know how all that works. Somebody said the only man-made thing in heaven is the scars on Jesus. When Jesus resurrected his body, he retained his scars. We don't know why. But the Bible says one day they will see his scars and say, where did you get those? And he's going to say in the house of my friends. Jesus' scars are still there. But other than that, so our bodies belong to him and he bought them and he will set them aside for a while and take our spirits to heaven. But one day he's going to resurrect that body and join that, our spirit back with our body. But it'll be a new kind of body. Y'all follow that? That doesn't get explained much, and a lot of people are real confused about all that. You do not become an angel. You will remain a human for eternity. But you will become the kind of human God meant for you to be to start with in the resurrection. All right? So that's what it means, resurrection. Well, if you, where are people if they're by? Because this is not me. This is the house I live in. You've never seen me. You don't know if I'm black, white, purple, yellow, green, chartreuse. My wife's favorite color, teal. If you've never seen a dog that color, it's not a real color, by the way. That's just a joke, sorry. Uh, Nobody cares about that. All right, sorry. You don't know what I look like. You know what my body looks like. And this is just a house I'm living in. This This is the outfit, the suit, that lets me live in this atmosphere on this planet. But God can make a body. I can just walk through the sun, remember? I already mentioned that. And not only that, but man, I'm not even going to get to the other points. Our spirit. In John 4, 24, the well, Jesus looks at the woman and says, Neither place, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our spirits belong to God. That's what ascends to God at our death, right? Our spirits leave our body and they go to be with God. You follow that? You with me? Everybody with me? Maybe I bored you talking about all this. I don't know, but you with me? I want to make sure you're with me. So my body belongs to God. My mind belongs to God. My spirit belongs to God. I am completely his. He owns me. And that's why the Bible calls me a slave. I'm a slave to God because he has purchased me from among men, the Bible says. He bought me out of the marketplace is what redemption means. He, I, there I was on the slave block, and he said, nope, you're not going to be a slave of the devil. You're going to be a slave of mine. And the Bible says in Colossians 1, he lifts me out of darkness and puts me in the kingdom of light, and I belong to him. Now, how far should my obedience go? Oh, yeah, all the way. All the way. All the way. There's a controversy out there started this week because Nike uh, is using Colin Kaepernick, the first guy to kneel during the national anthem in the NFL. And uh, so they're using him as their spokesperson. And it says, um, I forgot what the beginning says, uh, even if it costs you everything. And so, of course, there's been a thousand like jokes made on that. But the best one is there's a picture of Jesus on the cross. And it says, follow, you know, what, follow, follow what you believe, even if it costs you everything. That's a Christian. If we're going to follow Christ, it will cost you everything. The Bible knows nothing of contemporary North American Christianity. Where you pray a prayer, get your name put on a roll, and then live any way you want. There is no Christianity apart from obedience. There is no Christianity if you think you can do whatever you want and still claim the name of Christ. Obedience means, or Christianity means that we obey God to the fullest with mind, soul, and body. I use soul and spirit interchangeably. So now you can go to the must rather. I, I mentioned it. 
He says we must obey God rather than men. That means it's necessary. This word means as binding. That must is as, as, as binding. The obedience is that word that is persuaded by an authority. Must is, it is a binding thing. I don't have an option here. I've got to do it. It's not an option. It's got to be done. The rather is just comparative. It means because it's the better choice. The reason for obedience is I could obey you, but it would be a lot smarter if I obeyed God who bought me and owns me and I answer to in the day of eternity. You see, what happens to us is we get the, the fear of men. Who should we obey? You should obey God. Why? Well, because I will never stand in front of your throne and answer to you for what I did. As I said, I, I figured out a long time ago, no matter what I did, I was going to make somebody mad. So I just had to figure out who it was I wanted to make mad. And I knew who I didn't want to make mad was God, so I'm going to obey God. And if you don't like how I obey God, tough. Take it up with Him. Now, I'm not saying I'd be, always be right. I may think I'm obeying God and be wrong, and I appreciate the correction. But my point is this, that we are called to obey God because listen to what they said and what that means. They said, quit preaching this Jesus. You're trying to bring his blood on us. And they said, we must obey God. And when they said that, they just said to those Sadducees, we think and believe and know Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And we will obey him before we'll obey you. You see, the cry of the Christian is that Jesus is God who put on flesh and set aside deity to live amongst us and live that perfect life and to win the battle that Adam lost. Adam is a man brought sin on men. Jesus is a man brings salvation to men, brings righteousness to men. He is the superior authority because he is better than angels. He's better than Adam. He is above all things. Read Hebrews 1. And now he is seated. Now that he's done the work, is seated. The king, the court is in session. The king has been seated. And now he's judging the world. And as we come to him, we come to him in obedience right now. But one day, the entire world will come to him by forced obedience. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God, to the glory of God the Father. We believe in the Trinity, but understand Jesus said, you've seen the Father, you've seen me. They are equal in power and authority. When the disciples said this, they were saying to the Sadducees, they were confessing. We believe Jesus is God and we're going to obey him rather than you. What a statement. That, is, that, is a, that, is, that right there would cost them their heads. And in fact, as we get into the story more, you will see that that was probably what was going to happen except for one fellow. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. And the last thing I want you to catch is why shouldn't we obey men? Well, of course, we got to obey men. We got to obey the laws of the land. I got to pull over if the policeman pulls in behind me with his lights going, right? Yeah, I've, I've got to do what my authorities tell me to do at, to a point. This doesn't say you tell your boss, I don't care what you say, I'm going to read my Bible at work. No, you owe your boss eight hours a day or whatever it is. Right? Yeah, so you give, render unto Caesar things that are Caesar's. But render unto God things that are God's. And your job, you should look at your job as God gave me this job in order to glorify him. So number one, I need to do a good job at my job. But then number two, I need to be vocal about who it is that gave me this job and why I'm here. 
Do you get the balance there? That's the balance. Be the best employee you could be. Do you ever see that old movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai? Anybody remember that? I didn't get that for, I used to see it as a little kid on TV and have reruns. But what happened is these British officers and, and, and British soldiers were in World War II, I guess it was, uh, were captured and they were, and they were uh, prisoners of war. And these men were engineers and they got them to build a bridge over the River Kwai. I don't even remember what country that's in, Thailand, I think, maybe. But anyway, they had to build this bridge. It, well, it could have been Thailand, but they, they built this bridge. Well, either Americans or another force came to blow up that bridge so the enemy couldn't get over it. And the British didn't want them to blow it up because they had built it so well. <laughs> they did a great job because they said, we are going to do what we know how to do to the best of our ability, even though it's not something we want to do. But we're not going to do less than our best. And we can argue the philosophy of that. But that just strikes me that it doesn't matter what God called you to do, do it to your best. Right? And so you, you, owe, you owe that to men, but you don't obey, have to obey if the government said you must kill your baby like they did in China for so many years. If you have more than one, you've got to kill everyone after the first one. You don't have to do that. In America, it's not mandated yet. And we are on the precipice of being able to maybe start changing some things. Forget the news, pray. Because this world can't come to an end without stuff getting really ugly. But if God will grant us another little season where we have freedom to do freely what we should do. Listen, if we die for it, we ought to do it, right? Because we've got to obey God rather than men. But right now we're still free to obey God. So... We shouldn't look at the face of men, but we should look at the face of God. Man, when he says we must obey God rather than men, he's not talking about that Sanhedrin. He's talking about mankind. We owe, a high, we owe it to a higher authority. We owe it to God to obey him rather than to the authorities of men. And so we send missionaries to places where the government says you can't talk about Jesus here. We've got, we've got at least one man in this state that we don't say his name. I won't even say where he is. But he is part of our network. And his name is not listed anywhere. It's not spoken anywhere. Because he ministers to people that will kill him. If, if it gets too public what he's doing. So we just don't talk about him. But we pray for him all the time. Maybe one day I'll get him here so you can hear him. So I want to throw some verses up there for you. About this, I, I asked Katie to implant the verses. In, in Psalm 54, 4, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? We'll see what Jesus said about this later. Go to the next one, please. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 29, 25. Here's another one. I am he who comforts you. you who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? And the son of man... Who's made like grass. Isaiah 51, 12. Why would you obey man when he's no better than you? Go ahead. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. Luke 12, 4. And then he said, fear him who can kill, destroy both soul and body in hell. Next one. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. In John seven thirteen. It says many unbelieved, but they wouldn't speak openly. And this is the guy that Jesus healed. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ. He used to be put out of the synagogue. John nine twenty two. So the, the poor, poor boy's parents threw him over because they were afraid. 
Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. John 12, 42. Another one. John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. This is about Peter. (laughs) You know, Catholics worship him. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's Paul talking about Peter. And so Paul said, so I stood him to the face and said, Peter, you know the gospel. And Peter repented and they got all that straight. But here's the the coup d'etat. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, notice this, I would not be. Not I would be a bad one. I would not be the servant of Christ. And that word servant is the word slave. Paul said, if I wanted to make you happy, I would not be serving Christ. If I wanted to please you, I would not be serving Christ. So Paul writes to them to the church at Galatia, and he writes them a hard lesson in the book of Galatians. Great book. First book written in the New Testament. You ought to read it. It's only six chapters. You can read it in about 15 minutes or less. Well, what can we do about all this? First of all, define your obedience. Compared to what I said, where are you on the obedience scale? One to ten. I described a ten. I'm not... A 10, I know that. I'm not sure any of us would ever reach a 10 here. Maybe we would. It was said of D.L. Moody that when he was young, he heard a man say, the world has yet to see what one man totally surrendered to God could do. D.L. Moody, God used him to lead 2 million people to Jesus Christ. And on his deathbed said, the world has yet to see what one man totally surrendered to God could do. We'll never get there on this world. But we can try. Define your obedience. Secondly, decide who you're going to obey. Once you've defined your obedience, it's a choice. But here's what Jesus said. If you, won't, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be the servant of Christ. If you're not willing to obey 100%. It's interesting, back when we used hymn books, in the Baptist hymn book, there was one song on obedience. One. It's a subject we don't like to talk about, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. There's no other, there's no other hymns in there about obedience except that one. Yet this is, this is, the book of James says, here's the definition of whether or not you're saved. Are you obeying God? Are you living out what he told you to live? Because that is the evidence that you're saved. So decide who you're going to obey. And then thirdly, flee the fear of man. Flee the fear of man. That is so easy for any of us. It is a particular weakness of mine. I will, I will fall into the fear of man very easily. I have to guard against that. And in a, in a spiritual way. I don't mean in a, you know, I see the blue lights. I'm pulling over and I can be afraid. That's okay. I messed up, you know. I need, I need to be pulled over. Not generally, I'm just saying. But are you going to let what men think dictate how you live? And if that's true, then you're not obeying God. You've got to let God dictate how you live. And again, you can't abuse men under the name of that. You can't, like I said, you've got to give your boss the hours you're supposed to give him. 
You've got to give your family what you're supposed to give them. You've got to give any responsibility. But here's the deal. Duty never conflicts. And there's always a third gear. When it looks like it's conflicting, there's a third gear. And you can find it. God will give you that third gear. And you can obey God. You can give the, the due that is right to man's authority. But you don't have to obey everything they say if it disobe- if it's, disagrees with God's will. Does that make sense? Okay. So flee the fear of man. Figure that out. And obey God.